0: well good morning so good to see you guys here whether you are joining us in the room or you're joining us on Facebook live this morning thank you so much for choosing fellowship Uh, if you would like to you can open up your Bible to mark chapter 2 that's where our text our primary text for this morning is located mark chapter 2 and we're going to study through the first 12 verses this morning So let's jump right in, and let's read the word of our living God together. Mark chapter two, starting with verse one. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, "What does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves said to them why do you question these things in your hearts which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. This is the word of our God, church. So, in our study of Mark chapter 1, we have seen the popularity of Jesus grow. He is now famous, and we know this. I think it took me about six messages to make it through the first chapter of Mark. We've, We've studied this, and we know that Jesus is becoming quite famous, especially now in Capernaum. He has an enormous following of fans, but now in the second chapter of Mark's gospel, we are going to begin to see the opposition to Jesus grow along with his popularity. As his popularity will continue to increase, so will those who come out of the woodwork to oppose him. Jesus mania is beginning to spread at this point across Israel, especially Galilee. But now Mark is going to begin to tell us about stories of the controversy that our Lord is going to create through his words and his actions. So let's go back to verse 1 and let's begin to track through the text together and we'll see what's happening here. And when he, of course Mark is referring to Jesus, when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days it was reported that he was at home. But I just want to make sure that you realize what's happened here as far as where Jesus lives, where he hangs his hat, at least at this point uh, during his ministry. It seems that Jesus has moved from Nazareth, the home of his youth, uh, certainly the home of his young adult years, as we believe that after his earthly father, Joseph, passes away, he most likely took over the business. And he worked for several years, really, over a decade, I'm sure, uh, running Joseph's business in Nazareth. But now it seems that he's moved from the village of Nazareth to a bigger city, to the city of Capernaum. And this is where we've seen a lot of Mark chapter 1 happen. And so a lot of the stories that we've talked about up to this point in mark's gospel have centered in this city of capernaum now why is this significant i think for one reason it's significant because the house that is referenced in this passage the passage that we are studying this morning the house that is referenced it might be the same one from chapter one. And if you remember when we talked through that, the house that belonged to Peter and Andrew, as Mark clearly says to us. However, some Bible scholars contend that Jesus maybe even purchased a home and that this is his house. That the house that we're now uh, in at the beginning of chapter two belongs to Christ himself. And I just think that's a, a neat point of interest Uh, because it makes the property damage that happens in our story this morning that much more interesting. (laughs) This might be (laughs) Jesus' home where this story takes place. Well, word gets out that Jesus is home, and soon there's a very large crowd that is surrounding the house. And that brings us up to verse 2. Let's look at what happens. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door they've filled the interior they've filled the exterior surrounding the house and there's quite a crowd trying to elbow and position to get close enough to hear at the doorway and he was preaching the word to them jesus is here doing what he said earlier was the very reason for which he had come He's preaching the word to those who are willing to listen to his message. Now, what is the word that he's preaching to the crowd? If you take a look back into chapter 1, and I would invite you to do that, just real quick look at verses 14 through 15 again, and you'll see that his central message during this part of his ministry, and it will continue for quite some time, is the good news Of the coming of the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God had come because the king had come and his challenge to those who would listen to this message was to repent and to believe in the good news to accept him as the king who had come however his sermon on this day was interrupted by a group of unstoppable with an unstoppable drive to see him a group that isn't going to let the crowd that's surrounding this house deter them from their mission. And let's see what happens here, verses three and four. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Mark tells us very little about this paralyzed man or his four friends. We don't know, for instance, if they are Jews or Gentiles. We don't know whether they are rich or poor. We don't know if they are religious people or sinners, right? We don't know how far these four men had come. Were they from the city of Capernaum? Were they neighbors that lived down the road or had they traveled a great distance from another city or town or village? These are all things that Mark leaves out. But we do know that they overcame the obstacle of the crowd. We know that the crowd surrounding the house created a barrier that they could not get through. So they decide to go over it. If you can't go through it, I guess go over it. And that's what this team of people on a mission that they feel is a necessary thing they must do, they decide to go over the crowd. And so they carry their friend to the roof. Now, I want to explain this roof to you a little bit. Because I want you to have a clear picture of this obstacle that this group overcomes. The, the roof that would have been on this house in Capernaum was made of interlocking crossbeams, thick crossbeams. And, and, and again, this is where it is kind of interesting if this is the home of Jesus Christ. And, and certainly if being a carpenter, he had a part in building it. How many of you know Jesus doesn't make junk? And so I'm sure this, if he bought this house even, I'm sure he selected one with a good roof. And this roof would have had interlocking crossbeams to start with. It would have been very sturdy. It would have been a flat roof. It would have been covered with thatch and then a layer of compacted dirt. The reason the roof would have been so solid and so strong is that people did a lot on their roofs. Uh, During this time in Bible history, Uh, they used their roof for many things. They stored belongings on them. They slept on their roof if it was hot and they just wanted to be in the, you know, cooler air of the evening. Uh, So it would have been a very strong and sturdy roof. It would have been a serious undertaking to break through this roof. One that these four men were very willing to do in order to help out their friend. You see, they were absolutely committed to getting this paralyzed man to Jesus. So, how does Jesus respond to the property damage? How does he respond when his message that day is interrupted? Well, he seems to love it. He seems to absolutely love it. And here's what he says. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus immediately recognized that the driving force that caused this group to overcome these barriers, the crowd that they couldn't get through, the very well-built strong roof that they had to disassemble in order to lower their friend to, that the driving force that caused these men or these people to get their friend through to see Jesus was faith. Faith moves the heart of God. Jesus was moved here. I know this because he uses a very affectionate word for this man that we would probably assume he just met. It's possible he had seen him before. It's possible he had interacted with him, but there's no no reason that we should think that in the text. And Jesus here uses the very affectionate Greek word technon, my child, my son. Jesus saw that it was their faith in him that motivated them. It was obvious what they wanted. They wanted to get their friend close enough to Jesus where Jesus could see their friend's need that he's paralyzed and give him the ability to walk again, to remove this disability from him. And so their faith drives them to overcome these obstacles and barriers to get their friend to Jesus so that Jesus could heal him. So what does Jesus do? He grants forgiveness. He says, child, Teknon, my son, your sins are forgiven. Hmm. kind of begs an interesting question to me. Is there a connection in the Bible between forgiveness and healing? Is there a connection in Scripture between sin and sickness? What does the Bible have to say about this? Let me take a, a quick tangent here and walk you through some ideas. Scripture, first of all, is clear that there are consequences for sin, that there are consequences for sin, that because we live in a fallen and sinful world, disease, disability, death exist. Because of the fall of man, because of sin being in the world, these things are reality. And there are examples in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, church, where a person's sin directly leads to disease, disability, and death. I'm just going to share a few with you very quickly. First of all, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians that some of them, because they had inappropriately practiced communion, oh, we're going to partake of communion here today. You might want to listen up to this. Because they had inappropriately practiced communion, they were weak, they were ill, and they had even died. That their sin and the way they partook of the lord's supper had resulted in disease disability and death the apostle paul said that mind you not old testament but new testament something he's writing to the church for the church very much applicable for us today brothers and sisters and in acts chapter 5 again another new testament example ananias and sapphira lied to god they lie to the Holy Spirit and they die sometimes sin leads to disease disability and death James seems to draw a connection between sin and sickness as well as forgiveness and healing when he writes these words in his letter James writes and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven again New Testament, brothers and sisters, very much written to the church for the church's edification and understanding. So I think it's right for us to say that because we live in a fallen and sinful world, disease, disability, and death are very much a part of our lives. And sometimes, sometimes sin directly leads to disease, disability, and death. We have examples in Scripture that would argue for that. But I want to be clear here. I am certainly not advocating for any sort of prosperity gospel. There's a a big difference between what I believe to be an accurate biblical view on this issue and what is often taught by the prosperity gospel preachers. Sin does not always lead to disease, disability, and death. And faithfulness does not always lead to health and long life. There are many, church, many righteous people who struggle terribly with sin, disabilities, and and chronic pain. And I could point out biblical examples to you at this time of that. Uh, We have the Apostle Paul and his thorn in the flesh. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 if you're interested. But Paul seems to have been inflicted by something here, and most Bible scholars believe that it was some sort of physical disability, whether that be his eyesight or or something else that he had to wrestle with. And Paul prays for it to be removed. He asks God three times for this to be removed from his life. And I'm sure with good motivation so that he can better serve God and better be the leader of the New Testament church at this point. And what is God's response to him? My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so it's certainly not the case that sinful people always struggle with disease, disability, and death, and righteous people are always healthy and never have any struggles like that. I mean, isn't this exactly what Asaph is talking about in Psalm 73? What causes Asaph to say, I almost walked away from faith altogether in Psalm 73? It's because he looked at wicked people whose lives seemed perfect, and he was someone who was righteous, and he was struggling every day. So these things do not have a one-to-one connection contrary to what the prosperity preachers might say and don't forget about John chapter 9 when the disciples assume that the man who is born blind that Jesus heals when they assume they make the assumption that the, that his blindness was a result of either his personal sin or the sin of his parents and what does Jesus say to them in that moment he says look guys don't be always be looking for cause and effect here i'm paraphrasing but he says to them the, the reason he was born blind was so that the power of god might be displayed in his life in this minute in this moment jesus didn't want his closest followers to see this issue in terms of cause and effect and so dr william lane rightly writes about uh, this issue in concerning, to the, concerning the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, and he says, "'Sickness, disease, and death are the consequence of the sinful condition of all men.'" In other words, the reason we struggle with them at all as people, the reason they are even a thing to wrestle with in the world is because of the fall of man, Is what Dr. Lane is saying. He says, but it is unnecessary to think of a corresponding sin for each instance of sickness. There's no suggestion in the narrative, he's talking about Mark chapter 2, that the paralytic's physical suffering was related to a specific sin. Jesus' pronouncement of pardon is the recognition that man can be genuinely whole only when the breach occasioned by sin has been healed through God's Forgiveness of sins, that's important because here Dr. Lane is putting his finger on the connection between sin and sickness and forgiveness and healing. Forgiveness comes first and then healing can happen. Whether or not this man in the text was paralyzed because of a sin, one thing is for sure One thing we know for certain, church, like everyone else on the planet, he was in need of Christ's forgiveness. That we know. And perhaps in this moment, when he looks into the eyes of Jesus Christ, this man realized that forgiveness was his deepest need. What he really needed was forgiveness, even more, even more than the ability to walk. And so Jesus sees the faith. He sees the faith of this man and he gives him what he truly needs the forgiveness of his sins. Well, I would assume that many people who heard this pronouncement had some sort of reaction. When Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven, my child, your sins are forgiven, I'm sure a lot of people reacted. Not just the Pharisees. We'll talk about them in a moment. But I'm sure a lot of people reacted that day because they knew only God could forgive sins. Even the Messiah, who they were starting to really believe this preacher from Nazareth might be. Even the Messiah couldn't forgive sins. And so I'm sure there was a reaction that bubbled throughout the room, all of those who could hear Jesus say that. But Mark records one silent response. And don't miss that in the text. This is not something that they audibly say. This is something they think in their hearts. And Mark records it for us. He says, now, some of the scribes, remember these guys, the Grammatus. We talked about them before. The teachers of the law. The PhDs in theology. The academics of the Bible. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning In their hearts not speaking it out loud not being divisive yet that's coming but in the quietness of their own heart they began to question why does this man speak like that he's blaspheming who can forgive sins but god alone would you remember the first time that mark introduced us to the scribes to these teachers of the law it was back in chapter one I mean, we, we could ask the question, well, why are they even here? Why are they even in this crowd? Well, back in chapter 1, when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, how did the people respond? Let me show you. You could certainly look at your own copy of the word too, but Mark one twenty-two says, And they were astonished at his teaching. This is everybody in the synagogue that day. Earlier in Christ's ministry, in the city of Capernaum, The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority. And don't miss that last clause, not as the scribes. I think some jealousy was beginning to bubble up in these uh, academics, in these uh, PhDs of theology, these teachers of the law. Jesus had displayed earlier in the synagogue authoritative teaching. Authoritative teaching. Remember what that word comes from, out of substance. He taught as one who had authority, and he backed it up. And he's been backing it up ever since that day with very clear demonstrations of authority, miraculous healings, casting out demons. And it appears that these academics were there to check out this teacher from Nazareth who was creating such a stir in their city and was upstaging them. Now they heard Jesus tell this paralyzed man that his sins were forgiven. And they react to his words in their hearts, not out loud. Only in their minds do they condemn Jesus of blasphemy. Why is that? Well, the charge of blasphemy is serious It's a death sentence, and they knew that once they said it, they were going to have to follow through to be guilty of blasphemy at this point in time in biblical history meant to be stoned, not because you've used and used too many drugs, mind you, but because people would pick up rocks and throw them at you until you were dead and so they knew if they said this out loud, well, then that they were going to have to follow up with that accusation. And so they began to think to themselves, and I'm conjecturing here a little bit, but they must have quietly thought, did we hear him right? Even the Messiah can't forgive sins. Only God forgives sins. Should I speak my accusation out loud? I don't know. He's pretty popular. There are a lot of people here right now, and they all seem to love him. Look at this crowd. Maybe we should wait for a better time. But this is something that begins to brew in their hearts and and take root in their souls. Maybe they're just so shocked at this time that they're absolutely speechless. No matter. Why? Because Jesus outs himself. (laughs) Jesus names the elephant in the room. He didn't have to do this. This was something that was in the hearts of these scribes. Jesus could have just let it go. But never missing a teachable moment, even if it might get him stoned. <laughs> Jesus gives voice to the elephant in the room. Look at verse 8 with me. He said, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Why do you question these things in your hearts? What's easier? What is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And what is easier, church? Which is the easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, okay, you paralyzed man, I want you to walk right now? Well, I guess that depends on your perspective. And and then Jesus answers our question from earlier. He answers our question very next in the story, is there a connection between forgiveness and healing? And what's Christ's answer to that question? If there's a connection between forgiveness and healing, yes, absolutely yes, there is indeed a connection. For this man, on this day, there is a connection. Jesus changed this man's life and healed his physical body. It's what we see next in verse 10. He says, but that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And what happened? Well, Mark gives testimony to the miraculous healing that happens, the last verse in our passage for today. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. One Bible scholar talking about this, he explains it this way. He said, he did the miracle, which they could see that they might know that he had done the other one that they couldn't see. Jesus healed the man physically as evidence of his ability to forgive his sins, would be another way to say it. So, As we wrap up this morning and we move towards application, we should always be asking as we come to God's Word, what should we learn from this story? And there are probably several good points of application here. There's probably things that you've thought of that I'm not going to talk about, but I'm just going to share one as we wrap up this morning. It's simple, but I think it's so important. Jesus still responds to faith with forgiveness and healing. Church, Jesus still responds to faith with forgiveness and healing. This story foreshadows what he does for all who trust in him. It's foreshadowing. It's a literary device. It's true. It happened. It's a real historical event. I believe that there really was a house in Capernaum and and that there were four friends who had a paralyzed friend and they couldn't get through the crowd. And and so they really climbed up on the roof and they really cut a hole in the roof and they lowered the man down. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And then people start to question him about that. And so he says, okay, listen, I'm going to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins by healing him, that this really happened. But it also foreshadows something. It foreshadows that Jesus responds to our faith with forgiveness and healing. In our passage this morning, Jesus granted forgiveness and then healing. And so today, by the cross, every lost sinner who comes to Christ in faith knows forgiveness in that moment and is given the promise of healing one day. Amen? every lost sinner it foreshadows what god is doing in all of our lives the apostle paul wrote to the romans and he said therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ what does that word peace mean it's translated from the greek word "eirene," the hebrew word shalom in Erede and Shalom have so much more depth to them than what we often think about with our English word peace. Because it not only can be translated peace, but well or welfare. The idea behind it, the drive behind the word Shalom is to make well, to fix what has been broken. Peace with God means many things in our lives, brothers and sisters. It does mean the forgiveness of our sins, praise God. It means abundant and eternal life with Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. And it also means the renewal of our bodies. It means complete restoration. The renewal of that which has been broken by the fall. You see, there are times... There are times when healing happens today, when it happens sooner than later. God in his mercy, I believe, still heals people today. I believe miracles still happen. Amen? I believe they do. I I don't buy a line of thinking that would say that that was just for the apostolic times or it was just for the Bible times and we shouldn't be looking for miracles today. Uh -uh, I disagree with that. I believe God still does miracles today, and it's exciting. It's wonderful when God heals supernaturally, whether it's disease or or disability or depression or He heals broken relationships. I mean, are we open to that here? Please say yes. Are we open to God healing people? I hope so. Please tell me we believe in a living and active God who still does the miraculous for his glory he still does miracles today and we should pray in faith that god would heal but even when healing does not happen in this life and sadly there are times when that is the case when people pray and communities pray and we don't see that healing today during the course of this life we still brothers and sisters have the promise that we will be resurrected and we know we will have glorified bodies that one day we will know complete healing i mean that's what paul is talking about here in first corinthians chapter 15 when he writes so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable but what is raised is imperishable it is sown in dishonor but it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, but it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, Paul says, there is also a spiritual body. Because Christ had been raised, Paul is saying, we too will be raised in perfection. We will know complete healing, church, one day. Amen. We will. Brothers and sisters, if you're struggling today, In any way, here comes the the point for you this morning. If you are here and you're struggling, and by that I mean physically, mentally, spiritually. If you are carrying a weight today, a thorn in the flesh like the Apostle Paul, have faith. Have faith. Lean into Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Trust in him, seek him, chase after him. Be like this group of friends in our story today that, that they do whatever it takes to get to him. They were unstoppable. Nothing's going to stop them. A crowd of people, we can't go through them, we're going to go over them. A, a roof that was well built, I don't care, we're digging through it. But we will get close to Jesus Christ. Be like them and be assured that he will respond to your faith with forgiveness and healing. Dr. Daniel Aiken talks about this idea and he says, He is the only one. He is the only one who can deliver me from the penalty of sin, providing for my justification. He is the only one who can deliver me from the power of sin, ensuring my sanctification. And he is the only one who can deliver me from the presence of sin, promising my future glorification when all will be set right, when everything that's broken in our lives, church, will be fixed, and we, when we will know complete healing. Amen? So the last thing I would say to you this morning is that the, the world around us is in desperate need of a church that proclaims forgiveness and healing. Isn't this the message that the world needs now more than any other message? You are forgiven and you will be healed because the world is sinful. The world is paralyzed because of its sin. Look at this statement by Dr. N.T. Wright. He says, Jesus' people have to be for the world what he, Jesus, was for Israel. We have to find ways of bringing healing and forgiveness to our communities. Worship team, come on up and join me. I need your help up here. We're going we're to sing and, and use this song as a time of transition around the Lord's table. I asked Pastor Ken to lead us in that time this morning. What does this look like as they come and they get in position? Just think with me for a minute. What does it look like for a church to think this way, of bringing this message of forgiveness and healing to the world? I think it could take many forms, but most often I think it starts with one person being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to another person and creating the space for this good news to be shared. And what is that good news? The good news has never changed. The good news is that Jesus still responds to, to faith with forgiveness and healing. He still responds to people who come to him in faith by giving them forgiveness in that moment and promising them healing. I still believe that the forgiveness and the healing Of Jesus Christ is what people need. People need Him. I I mean, could it could it really be that simple? Could it be so simple that the answer is that people just need Jesus? And and looking around, I see a large group of people who know Jesus. And if we have what they need and we can bring that message to them of forgiveness and healing that is offered if you come in faith to Christ, what an amazing impact this church could have on this community. I mean, what more glorious truth could there possibly be than the the truth to know that you're forgiven and to rest, to truly rest and to find peace peace with god to truly find shalom in knowing that you will be completely healed maybe in this life but certainly in the life to come